This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 142, and we are recording on July 31st. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Welcome. Hello. Welcome back. Thank you. How was, was your vacation? It was very nice. How was your floaty, fantastic vacation? Oh, it was very floaty. I really highly recommend uh, like getting out on water and letting the sun burn out all of your angst for Ooh. a few days once a year. It's good. It's good. Unless, you know, sun is bad. I know there's a lot of not into the sun because of sunburn folk out there, which is fine. But well, you put I, on sunscreen, right? Yes. Yeah. I enjoy just like... The feeling of cooking, <laughs> in this, like just laying there and letting it burn it all out of me. It's good. It's like a weird kind of sacrificial thing. <laughs> You're my favorite. <laughs> I know what I'm saying is nonsense. And yet, this is what I do. I go to no, the lake no. and I yeah. let the sun burn me out. Um, so you had just pride on, right? For Yeah, we show. talked about romance for like 50 minutes. It was awesome. <laughs> Amazing. She's so good. Her voice is so soothing. I know. I know. And calm. <laughs> I know. I have voice envy. I'm not going to lie. Both of them. If y'all don't listen to her show, Jess and Trisha um, on One in Romance, both of them just have the most like, talk about Delilah after dark. Just yes. So calming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So I'm I'm excited about what you're reading because I can see it on the agenda. Yes, I finally my library hold for Dread Nation by Justina Ireland Yay. finally came in. I've been on the list forever, and mm. I was on the list like in five different places. Like I had two ebook holds, and then I had it on like physical hold, and like I just and then like Hoopla. It's like I was just like, where <laughs> can I get this book? And I'm really delighted and annoyed that the hold list was so long. Like yay for her, <laughs> boo for me. Mm-hmm. But my <laughs> oh my copy finally came in. Um, and I am, I'm like a third of the way through and it's great. Mm-hmm. Oh man, it's so good. Um, if you haven't heard, um, it is a book that reimagines the post-Civil War period with zombies from mm. the perspective of a young uh, black woman who is at a finishing school for zombie killers, because obviously sure, um, it's just the best premise, I think, like, and that I've heard in a while. Like, what? Like, <laughs> who would have thunk it? But Justina did. It's such a good one. Um, and I should not be surprised because she used to be a book right contributor and always had great ideas. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm really enjoying it so far. There's good action. There's interesting characters on the page. And um, they just, they went to a lecture where some, like, quack scientist just basically almost got them all killed and had they had to save the day and it's just oh it's just so much fun I'm really I'm really digging it and I see I'm excited about your reading uh on behalf of Sharifa whose like favorite book that is oh really yes I didn't know that that's so good okay so I am listening to the audiobook of the we free men by Terry Pratchett which is my first Terry Pratchett and my first Discworld novel ever. I Googled, like, I had to look. We have one on the site, a guide of, like, where to start with Discworld because there's so many, right? There's, mm-hmm. like, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens. Um, and this one was recommended as one of the starting points. So it's the first book in the Tiffany Aching cycle, but it's the 30th book in the Discworld series. So question mark? I, I, I don't think I'm missing anything because as far as the guide said, you can kind of start at the beginning of any of the cycles with like any of the characters. So I don't, I, maybe I'm missing stuff. If I am, I don't know. So, uh, if uh, I don't even know what to say, I was no. going to be like, someone tell me if I'm missing a no, thing, no. but it's too late. Cause I'm like halfway through it. <laughs> this is where Sharifa um, recommends that you start also. And she's oh, like a huge okay. Discworld nut. So great. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's like, it's very, um, uh, if Tolkien meets Douglas Adams kind of like slapstick oddball quirk in, um, like really like British mythology kind of stuff. Like there's picks, picks, picked seas, like the picks, mm-hmm. um, blue tattoos, warriors of the North are tiny little 
pixie people. It's just, it's really funny. I've laughed out loud several times. I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm reading. Yay, Discworld. Okay, so moving on. How the show works. Uh, as I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So if you need a reading recommendation for yourself or your book club or a gift or whatever, um, you can send that to us and we will answer it. You can email your requests to us at getbookedatbookwrite.com or you can drop them in the form on the show notes on the site. Uh, if you use uh, the form, please note in the first line of your entry that if your question is time sensitive, then we need to know that. Big letters, please. Or put it in the subject line of the email if you use the email so we can see it and try to answer it on time. Um, If we're not going to get to it on time on the show, then we will email you back an answer. Uh, We might also email you back if we've already answered your question on the show before um, so that you don't have to like go back and listen to 142 episodes to find a nice book about Croatia to read. Like we're not gonna <laughs> uh, So we will just email you back. Um, and that is how the show works. I've been out for a week and I, I'm not missing anything. Am I? I still have vacation brain. I'm like, where? No, no, you, I think you nailed Great. that. Awesome. Cool. I have done this 142 times. So you <laughs> think that I'd have it down by now. And then like a week off would not make me be so confused. Um, okay, so Jen's going to read our first question. I will tell you about our first sponsor and away we will go. All right. Our first question is from Lacey who says, I'm going on a road trip with my husband and in-laws in August and would love to listen to a family-friendly mystery audiobook. Murder is okay as long as it's not too gruesome and please no sex. <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> Yeah, family audiobook time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Especially with in-laws. That's always a little awkward. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so before we get to that, our first sponsor is Suicide Club by Rachel Hang, a novel about living published by Henry Holt and Company. Um, This is a dystopian escapist novel with a little bit of heart set in a futuristic New York City, and it is a debut. Uh, The main character's name is Leah. And she is what's called a lifer, which means that a roll of the genetic dice has kind of given her the potential to possibly live forever if she does everything right and makes a series of correct decisions. Um, but after the return of her father, who is estranged from her, Leah is drawn into the mysterious world of the Suicide Club, which is a network of really powerful, kind of rebellious people who reject society's constant pursuit of immortality and choose to live and die on their own terms. So Leah is kind of forced to choose between this really sanitized existence of immortality or a short, really bittersweet time with the man who she has never really known, but who is in reality the only family that she has left. And I know I can't show it to you because this is a podcast and that's how eyes work, but the cover is really nice. (laughs) So you should go look at the cover. Um, And this is a case of like, judge it by the cover. It's a really, it's really pretty. So that is Suicide Club by Rachel Hang. And thank you for sponsoring the show. Mm. Okay, I'm gonna keep talking. So audio mystery audiobook, Murder No Sex. I picked Death Below Stairs by Jennifer Ashley, which is the first book in the Cat Holloway mystery series. Um, there are only two right now, I think. So you could listen to both. I did check and they are in audio. I love this book so much. It is An upstairs-downstairs murder mystery set in Victorian England where the main character, the sleuth, is the head cook of a house, of like a very fancy house. So if Downton Abbey had a murder mystery, which it did actually a couple times, but if Downton Abbey had a murder that was solved by the cook, this is what that book would be. Um, Kat is a little bit younger than the head cook of Downton Abbey. She's in her 30s. Um, She has a couple of family secrets of her own that are revealed as the book goes along. But you know pretty soon... um, that she has been wronged in the past by a man. She's had to defend herself from assault from some of her employers in the past. But she's so talented and such like an efficient and stern um, and like capable cook that she continues to get really good references. And so at the beginning of the book, she gets hired um, in the Mayfair Mansion, which is the household of Lord Rankin. He has a wife who is kind of like a flibberty gibbet. Like she's very flighty and kind of silly and airheaded. And also in the household is her sister, um, whose name I don't remember. They call her Lady Lady something. I don't remember her men name. Anyway, the, the the lady of the house, her sister is what they call an eccentric who refuses to wear dresses, uh, which in Victorian England was like a big, big deal. But she's so wealthy that she can kind of get away with doing it. So she wears all men's clothes. And she comes running down into the kitchen the day that Kat is hired as the new cook and declares that she has killed someone on accident. And then from there you get kind of drawn into this mystery. Um, The person who she thinks she's killed is not the actual victim, but that's what starts the, um, you know, 
ball rolling, I guess. Uh, and then it just gets bigger and bigger and more involved. And eventually, like, the Irish nationals get involved. And then the queen makes an appearance. And all while you're just, you're following this cook. There is a side kind of romance. Um, she gets, she has a past with a man who is hired into the house as, like, a, um, what is, like, the dude version of a maid of all work? Like a Mr. Fix-It carpenter runs some errands, does that kind of thing. He gets hired into the household, and she's very surprised to see him because she knows that that's not what he actually is. He's actually, like, a gentleman, and why is he here pretending to be poor? And so that's another mystery, and they have a little bit of a past that you get to know. Um, The murder itself is not, like, gruesome or violent. There's absolutely no sex. It's very PG. I would say that it's G, except there's, like, explosives at one point, um, and apparently moments of intense peril can move something up to a PG rating. Um, Okay. So that is death below stairs by Jennifer Ashley. Nice. I asked around for this one and like 14 people (laughs) told me (laughs) to recommend to you the unexpected inheritance of inspector Chopra, which is the first in the baby Ganesh agency investigation. It is a sort of cozy mystery with elephants who doesn't like elephants actually and now i'm flashing back to the question we had about happy books about elephants um this could have worked for that if only i had known um so it is about as you might expect an inspector named ashwin chopra who uh is all set to retire and then there are two mysteries that happen and on the day that he is supposed to tire um the first is that a little boy has drowned and it is suspicious but nobody wants to seems to want to solve it and then there is a baby elephant um and so he has to try to figure out what is going on with these two things it's set in mumbai and he goes on a big journey from like the high rises to the poorer areas and the underworld um and he has to figure out like also what to do with a baby elephant, which sounds delightful. Um, the There are a bunch of books in this series and they're all on audio and there are two different narrators and I have been told by the people who know that um, the it switches uh, and that some people like prefer the first two narrators. So just, just I'm just throwing that in as information. Um, I don't know what you can do with it, but you can do something with it perhaps. <laughs> so yes, Cozy Mystery set in India Uh, Baby Elephant, like, sounds like a good road trip book to me. So that's The Unexpected Inheritance of Inspector Chopra um, by Vaseem Khan. Okay, question two is from Erin, who says, I am going to Quiaquet, British Columbia for a kayaking trip in August and would love any reading recommendations for books about this area or about sea otters. I am currently reading Heartberries by Therese Marie Mallow and have read The Forest Lover by Susan Vreeland. I work from home and your podcast is my treat. Oh, great. Okay, thanks. Um, I tried to like skip over the crazy parts of questions and I obviously did not read ahead enough on that one. Okay. Um, So I picked The Haunting of Vancouver Island by Shannon Sin um, for this question. And Shannon Sin is an interesting character. He's a member of the British Columbia Ghost and Hauntings Research Society. Um, Yes. And the Paranormal, Paranormal Studies and Inquiries Canada Society. And he's like an infantry veteran and photographer and all of this kind of stuff. He's like a very interesting kind of character. So he lives in Vancouver Island. And um, there are apparently quite a few uh, like ghost stories, stories of the paranormal and the supernatural, and like local lore and all of that kind of stuff about um, Vancouver Island, everything like ghosts, sea serpents, Sasquatches, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and as he has heard these stories and kind of started researching them, he realized that like as they're, as they're getting retold and retold throughout the years, they're becoming more and more kind of goofy and silly. And so he wanted to get to the real root of where these kind of myths and folklore and haunting stories on Vancouver Island come from. So he started doing a bunch of research, identifying historical inaccuracies, and going back as close as he could get to the origin of where a lot of these stories came from, and has written that into this book. So there are 25 stories in the book that he starts from the south end of the island and then moves up to the north. Um, and he's exploring like hauntings and paranormal sightings and all of that kind of things in, in all of the areas of Vancouver Island. So like cities, forests, logging roads, coasts, all of that. Um, he visits a bunch of castles and cemeteries. Um, 
And he also features stories from three of the First Nations indigenous groups who live on Vancouver Island. And the book also has an interview with James Swan, who is a hereditary chief of one of the indigenous uh, tribes who live on the island. So he's taking a lot of different perspectives into account. It's very heavily researched. And he's approaching it like it's a very interesting, obviously, because of his background. I don't think that he he doesn't discount automatically the possibility of supernatural or ghosty things happening. But he is still approaching it with, like, a healthy degree of skepticism, which I appreciate, um, without losing any of the, like, creepy kind of, you know, skin-crawly nature of standing in a logging road and feeling like you're being watched. <laughs> which, even if nothing is watching you, you know, it, you could, I understand how you would still feel that way. So that is The Haunting of Vancouver Island by Shannonson. Well, I want to thank you for sending in this question, Erin, because I've now learned so much about sea otters and I'm really delighted. (laughs) I found for you The Return of the Sea Otter by Todd McLeish. And this is, so McLeish is a science journalist and he goes up and down the Pacific coast, um, like to Alaska and California. And um, I think Vancouver's in there, although now I can't remember. And he talks to all of these different researchers and scientists and like animal activists and environmentalists about sea otters. And it is so interesting. Like, did you, I have such a case of the, did you know? It's like, did you know? Yes, I love that game. Did you know that sea otters can literally change the shape of their eyes? Because when you are like, above water you want your eye to be flatter to see better but when you're underwater it's better if your eye is like a little bit like spherical and bulgy and then somehow they have evolved the ability to change depending on where they like the shape of their eye depending on where they're that's bananas um and so in addition to all of these like delightful facts about sea otters that you will learn mcleish also is looking at this whole environmental issues that i didn't know about because they're a capstone species that um has since been reinforced introduced to a lot of places, but it since it's changed the level of um, like abalone and uh, sea urchins that were previously being fished commercially, there are a lot of fishermen, fisher people, who <laughs> do not appreciate that they have been reintroduced and want them like confined to specific areas, but it's like really hard to confine a sea otter to a specific area because they go where they want. So there's all of this interesting political stuff in there. There's environmental stuff in there. There's, you know, this great like ecology stuff. Um, And you get to meet some of these characters who are like deeply embedded in the sea otter restoration projects and monitoring them. I will say that there is a chapter where he like sees an autopsy. I guess it's technically a necropsy performed on a sea otter. And like, that was kind of gross. Yeah, really nasty. But then it gets balanced out by like baby sea otter rescue. So, you know, you could skip the necropsy chapter if you really wanted to. Um, It's very like Mary Roach, but with sea otters, that one. Uh, So, yeah, it's super interesting. It's very readable. I am super enjoying it. And I think that if you actually, like, were getting to kayak around and see them, it would be really fun to see some of the stuff he's talking about in person. So that's Return of the Sea Otter by Todd McLeish. All right. Our next question is actually a combo question. <laughs> um, we, we had two very similar ones, which is kind of unsurprising. The first one is from Tegan, who says, I love book recommendations for if you loved the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. Fun sci-fi with great characters. I've already enjoyed Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And then Tracy said, one of my favorite books in recent years is Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. <laughs> hey, uh, I love the colorful characters, the themes of found family and searching for your place in the world and the general feeling that everybody is just kinder and more open-minded in the future. Um, let's see. I loved the rich sci-fi world building in the series, open to reading books with a similar tone in other settings and genres. So we decided to combine those two because they are very related. Amanda, what you got for this? Okay. Um, I went with Space Opera by Catherine M. Valenti, which is like, if Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy were about Eurovision and was written 18 million times more stylistically than uh, Douglas Adams, but still with that offbeat, kooky kind of humor. Um, so in this kind of universe, the what, what she calls the sentience wars, where like every sentient race in the galaxy had this giant intergalactic 
not world war, but intergalactic war, where because they, you know, what you think is alive depend is is very different for every species in the galaxy. And so they wouldn't consider necessarily a race from four light years away to be alive. And so the idea of like what counts as life led to this huge giant war, um, which nearly ended intelligent life in the galaxy. So in the aftermath, they have, uh, have the, you know, all sentient beings have created this kind of I mean, Eurovision. I don't know what else to call it. It's like the Metagalactic Grand Prix is what they call it. It's like a gladiator contest combined with a beauty pageant, combined with a musical competition, extravaganza. And it's this like tradition to reaffirm the value of life, but also to give every race in the galaxy a chance to have some sort of competition, some sort of like way to best the other races in the galaxy without having to murder them. (laughs) So instead, maybe you just play the guitar. Um, And then, so when the book opens, mankind has, like humanity has just, has been discovered. People have made contact with other uh, like alien races in the universe. So they are required because humans are sentient to enter this metagalactic Grand Prix. Um, But compared to a lot of other species in the universe, we don't have that many talents we're not going to compete in a gladiatorial game or anything like that um so instead we send decibel jones and the absolute zeros which is a one-hit wonder band to represent us to rock out with their socks out Uh, because the grand prix is very like glitter and lipstick and glam rock and disco balls like nothing like what you would expect from all of the races across the universe and uh, coming together to compete in a thing. Like it's very, I just Eurovision. I'm just going to keep saying it because that's what it is. So it's like, there's the found family aspect of this band coming together. When the book opens, the band is like falling apart. One of the characters has died in an accident. The other two have gotten themselves, you know, like they're depressed. They don't have purpose anymore. They were one hit wonders. So they really are missing that kind of attention. And then they get, they go from that to being thrown into like representing all of humanity, uh, which is a big, it's a lot of pressure. Um, but it's very like warm um, in that kind in the same way that a uh, long way from an angry planet is. Um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't difficult or that they aren't dealing with difficult issues or facing very high stakes kinds of things. But again, with a lot of eyeshadow. So it's like fun. But her, I will say her writing takes some getting used to because it's like paragraph long sentences. And she does these kind of meandering asides um, that once you get into it, like it's very rhythmic. Once you get into it, it becomes easier and easier to follow. But it's super, super stylized um, in a way that the Becky Chambers books aren't at all. But Feelings-wise, I think you'll get kind of the same sort of thing from it. So that's Space Opera by Catherine M. Valenti. I picked The Wrong Stars by Tim Pratt, which is my new favorite comp for people who loved the Becky Chambers books. Um, Because it does, it just has so many of the same feelings. And I think also it's a great comp for Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, It's got a little bit of that like wacky campy feel just a touch of it um it is about a crew on a ship called the white raven and they run freight and salvage so they go around like searching for wrecks um legally like totally legally they are employed to do this thing um and you know they carry freight and all of that stuff these are not smugglers um and they find this wreck that doesn't make any sense it is a spaceship that is centuries old and it's floating like just outside of Jupiter where there's no reason for it to be. Um, like this is very highly patrolled territory. Somebody should have found it already. Like where did it come from? Why is it here? And then it turns out that there is a person in cryosleep on board this centuries old ship. So they wake up the occupant and she starts screaming about like first alien contact. And they're like, yeah, like that we're like yeah we're we're cool with the aliens (laughs) like we know that there are aliens and we're like it's fine we're all coexisting quite fine um but it turns out that the aliens that she's talking about are perhaps not the ones that humanity is interacting with and everything kind of spools out from there and it turns into this like really like hijinksy high stakes adventure and you know humanity is on the line and who's lying and who's not and what's going on it's it's really fun um 
It's also got a great set of characters. There are queer characters. There are characters of color. There are like cyborg characters. There's a great (laughs) alien character. Um, It's a really fun ensemble cast. They interact in super great ways. And I really loved, there's a couple of moments where the characters are like nervous that things are going to turn out in a very specific way. And then it rewinds and does something completely like sort of to the side. And and it's basically Pratt playing with the cliches of these kind level like aliens and predator and all of those like you know space franchises about alien encounters like he's playing with them in a really conscious way that I found delightful uh so it it, I just thought it was fun from start to finish just super fun it is the first in a series and the second one comes out this fall um so it's not done yet but I think it ends on a really satisfying note there's definitely more plot to be dealt with but it has like a good solid ending and I think everybody who has is just obsessed with Becky Chambers will want to pick this one up um, I also just want to note for every, all of our Becky Chambers obsessed fans that the <laughs> third book in the Wayfarers series is out now it's Record of a Spaceborn Few you can get it from your bookstore or your library or wherever and I, I have read it and recommended it um, or I reviewed it rather for our sci-fi fantasy newsletter it's it's real good you're, you're going to want to get it unsurprising it's fun. It's super different, too, from the first two in an interesting way. I like what she did. Oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Curiosity peaked. I mean, like, it's it's got that same optimistic, warm feeling to it, but the way that the character set works out is really different. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> curious. Curious, curious. Okay, question four um, is from Carol, who says, I've recently gotten interested in the ideas behind and the process of translating. It started with the release of Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey and the surrounding media buzz. Follow that up with a conversation about ASL interpreting some Jhumpa Lahiri and an internet rabbit hole about Harry Potter books and translation. And I want to deep dive into something about being a literary translator, whether it be fiction, memoir, nonfiction, whatever. I'm finding it difficult to look up suggestions on the internet because the results tend to either be the works and translations themselves or how-to guides, which isn't quite what I'm looking for. Okay, Um, I went with The World Between Two Covers, Reading the Globe by Anne Morgan. Anne is not a translator herself. She's a journalist and a blogger who took on a project of reading one book from every country in a year, um, uh, several years ago, which she did. uh, She, you know, recorded the process and what it was like on a blog that then turned into this book. Um, I went into the book expecting it to be about the books that she had selected for each country and like what she thought about them, but it was barely about that at all. It was mostly about the process of translation and how difficult it is in specific countries and like what even is a country. She, She examines it from a lot of different angles. So she picked the 194, I think, nations recognized by the UN. And then she added Taiwan and Palestine. And she read a book from each one. Um, But the ones that are most interesting are like when she tries to get a book translated, like written in Korean out of North Korea, the kind of censorship she runs up against. Um, And also when she starts reading books from like tiny countries in the Pacific, uh, the like little island countries where storytelling traditions are mostly oral, she runs into, of course, issues of like, well, there aren't any, um, but also there, I mean, there are stories, but there aren't novels necessarily in the way that we think of them from a Western perspective, and they certainly aren't written down. So then she goes uh, off on like this quest of following this group of Western I don't, it was from some some NGO who makes it a point to like write down the oral stories that they're hearing from in this one particular country. I don't remember the name of it, but it was like a tiny little island country. Um, and Morgan talks about how taking an oral storytelling tradition and putting it on paper for Western audiences really removes so much of the richness of the story. Um, it, like it's like writing down, you know, a stand-up comedian's routine. You're not going to get 90% of what makes the thing funny. Um, and then she, she talks also about like the first Qatari novel that was ever translated into English. It's called the Corsair and she couldn't get it. So she had to hire someone to translate it and like what that process is like. So she's coming at it from a lot of different perspectives is that it, it isn't just like, you know, I am a, I am a French speaker sitting down to translate this French novel into English, which compared to, you know, finding someone to translate a novel from 
Qatar is like pretty easy, um, even though such a small percentage of the books that American and UK readers read are in translation. So she's looking at the, like the whole process from start to finish, getting those books out of those countries, finding translators, what that takes, what that's like. It's not a how-to guide at all. Um, and she does talk a lot about some of the books that she picked, but it, that's certainly not the focus of, of the book. It is very much about translation and how hard that can be. Um, depending on the countries you're talking about. So that's The World Between Two Covers by Anne Morgan. That's so interesting. I now Mm -hmm. really want to read that book. It was fascinating, fascinating. Yeah. Um, I picked a novel for you. I picked An Unnecessary Woman by Rabia Alamedin, which is about a woman who lives in Beirut. Her name is Alia. And she, every year, translates a personal favorite book into Arabic, but then doesn't publish any of them. She's she's done this for 37 years and nobody has ever read her translations. Like she finishes the translation and she puts it in a box and then starts her new one. Um, and she lives alone and she is divorced and her parents are dead and she doesn't go to, or her father is dead and she doesn't go to like, you know, she's not part of the community in a big way. So she's this solitary older woman who gets gossiped about by her neighbors. Um, and And it's kind of about, it's about a lot of things, this book. It is about her obsession with this, like, or her rather this, like, compulsion she has to translate books into Arabic, but then not to do anything with them. It's also about um, the past and present of Beirut and the Lebanese Civil War. It's about family. It's about being a woman of a certain age and trying to, like, make your own life despite whatever society wants of you. Um, And it is really just so so detailed and immersive and beautifully written and paced. It moves back and forth in time. So, so that did actually take me a little bit to like, okay, where are we right now? Um, but once you get into the rhythm of it, it is really, you just feel like you're being carried right along. And and Alamedine is such an observer of human foibles, like these really tiny moments become these sort of set pieces. And it is just kind of amazing. Um, Yeah, I thought it was just, it's just a really great book, but it's definitely an interesting look at the kind of person who decides to become a translator, but like just for themselves and why you might do that. Uh, So yeah, I think you will, I think you'll get a lot out of it. And it is in in and of itself. Um, Where is it? It's not translated he wrote it in English I believe he wrote it in English I think so yeah yeah so that's interesting too um so it's an unnecessary woman by Rabia Alamedine and it is time for our second sponsor, which is Chica Chocolate. This is fun. They infuse <laughs> high-quality chocolate truffles with a Chinese herbal formula that promotes a better period. So for our period-having listeners, this is something perhaps of interest to you. It is not just an excuse to eat chocolate every month. <laughs> the herbs uh, are supposed to target the root of symptoms that you might get, the challenging period symptoms, um, and giving your body support to maintain a natural hormone balance. So customers have reported improvements in mood swings and PMS and cramps and acne, all kinds of uh, those things, which are, we all know are super fun. Um, and they deliver every box directly to your door, which makes it very easy to get into this. Um, and they are it's run by two young women who think that periods shouldn't have to suck, which is a mission I appreciate. Um, and yeah, I, I am here for anything that will help out with symptoms, but also I'm just here for chocolate. And they, they so they sent me some, <laughs> let's, uh, let's be real here. They sent me some and I, I had to restrain myself because you're, they, there's like seven chocolates and you eat them for a certain week, you know, during your cycle that will help with your PMS, um, is the, is the goal here. And I opened the, the package and it just smelled so good. I was like, Oh, I just want to put them in my face, but I'm trying to like for science, I'm trying to do the thing for science so I put them in the fridge like I'm supposed to and I'll wait to eat them until the right timing Um, but I'm really curious to see there are lots of I mean I know myself and a lot of people have experimented with like you know over-the-counter supplements to help out with things like PMS and cramps and um, I'm here for a chocolate version of that so I will report back but in the meantime they smell amazing and this is a really interesting option so you can go to chicachocolate.com to learn more um, and 
you can use code CHA-CHING, that cracks me up, um, for 15% off of your first month of Chica. So that's C-H-A-C-H-I-N-G, that's your code for 15% off your first month. Thank you for sponsoring the show. And thank you for sending me chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) In real time. In real time, yes. All right. So, oh, this is a good one. Our next question is from an angry woman. I'm looking for angry women book recommendations. I want to read a book that centers a woman speaking on the things that make them angry. Fiction or nonfiction will do. Bonus points for books in translation. What you got, Amanda? Okay. I picked... Maybe the angriest book I've ever read. The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. I'm pretty sure the first line in the book is like, I am effing angry or something to that. I haven't read it in a couple of years, but I remember reading the first line and being like, okay, (laughs) this is what I'm in for. Uh, And it was amazing. So it's about a woman named Nora who is 37 and she is an elementary school school teacher in Massachusetts. Um, She is not in any serious romantic relationships. She's abandoned her dreams of being a successful artist, and she has become, you know, the titular woman upstairs. She's reliable. She's quiet. She's tidy. She doesn't make anybody else's lives uncomfortable. She's supportive. Um, As you know, single women who are over the age of 30 are often expected and encouraged to be. But she is so pissed about it. Like, she is just full of all of this rage that her life has become this thing and not just because she's allowed it to but because she's been pressured into it and expected to behave in this very particular kind of way and so while this is happening um she's like you know processing her anger about the state of her life really um she gets a new child in her classroom named reza um and he and his his parents are skander and serena and Skander's a lebanese scholar who has come to massachusetts to work at harvard he's gotten a fellowship and serena is this like very beautiful italian artist to you know kind of essentially what Nora has wanted to be her whole life. Um, Reza is bullied a little bit at school. He's called a terrorist and all this kind of stuff. And so Nora gets drawn into their family life, uh, you know, as a teacher at first to help the kid with his transition and to, you know, let, let the parents know what's happening in the school. But then she befriends them, the parents, and she finds herself completely like removing all of her professional and personal boundaries. She gets super close to the husband and then she gets super close to the wife. Um, And then Serena, the wife, um, does a terrible thing that leads to this very big betrayal of their friendship. Um, And Nora has to deal with kind of the personal fallout of that. But it is, um, I get what there's, there's a Barbara Pym novel what is it called? The Good Woman? No, that's not it. I'll I'll find it later and I'll put it in the show notes. But there's a Barbara Pym novel about this thing about women, single women of a certain age who are getting us to a certain age and like the expectations of that that we place on women in that state. And but that book was written, I think, in like the 50s. So I feel I've always felt like this is an updated version of that where instead of being kind of sad and accepting about it, Nora becomes a rage monster <laughs> in a way that I just like deeply appreciate. It is very, very much about centering female anger. So that's The Woman Upstairs by Claire Massoud. I picked an essay collection for you. I am obsessed with it. It's called Eloquent Rage, A Black Feminist Discovers Her Superpower. It's by Brittany Cooper. And this book is basically about anger as a source of energy that gives us strength. Because I think a lot of times, I mean, we know a lot of times women are told to be less angry. And particularly black women are not allowed to be angry because then they are the stereotypical angry black woman. And Brittany Cooper is tackling all of that in this collection alongside of things like you know um, Sweet Valley High novels and (laughs) pop culture and Serena Williams and Beyonce and dating and uh, just all of all of these you know sort of daily like the micro and the macro aggressions and issues that particularly black women have to deal with as feminists um, as intersectional feminists and how do you use the anger that you have over these injustices and, you know, move yourself forward in the world and, and make change? Like, how do you do that? And especially how do you reconcile the things that are just 
perhaps not reconcilable, like your personal feelings about things versus what you think should happen policy-wise, which is a really sticky, thorny issue. And I so appreciate when people tackle it because this is a thing that I often sort of feel floundery about. Um, And she does such a great job of sort of articulating her thoughts on it. And I found it so helpful in trying to parse out my own. And yeah, it's incredibly moving. There's some really sad stuff in here. There's some really funny stuff in here. And obviously there's a lot of anger and rage about uh, just, you know, what it is that black women have to deal with in the world. So I think that this is like a everybody should read it kind of book, Um, especially if you believe yourself to be an intersectional feminist. It is essential reading Um, or or you would like to become an intersectional feminist, like which I support. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) should read it. But yeah, if you have a lot of rage, it is going to feel very satisfying to you and very thought-provoking. So that's Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. All right. Question six is from Sunny, who says, I'm a college student studying English and therefore spend a large amount of time reading intense literary books, which, don't get me wrong, is the light of my soul. However, now that summer is here, some of my favorite recreational books to read are ones that include a complicated villain romance. I know it's cliche, but it never fails to hit the spot when I'm looking for something light. Two of my favorites are the are Warner from the Shatter Me series and Reese from A Court of Thorn and Roses. I'm completely fine with YA, but would be interested if there's this type of relationship dynamic in adult fiction and a queer twist would be much appreciated. Okay, um, I am once again going to recommend <laughs> the extremely problematic, so don't at me, trilogy uh, of the captive prince by C.S. Picot, which is a queer romance. The trilogy is a romance. Like if the definition of a romance is a book about an emotional relationship or sexual relationship between two people with an emotionally satisfying ending, the first book, not a romance. The trilogy as a whole, yes. First book, no. So um, (laughs) every time I go to talk about this book, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get yelled at. (laughs) So I have to gird myself. Um, So this is in like a almost Greek, I guess, kind of alternate fantasy world that's not called Greece, but it is very Greek-like. The main character's name is Damon, and he is the heir to the throne of his country, um, Achilles, I think is what it's called. And then, but his brother, his half-brother, kind of overthrows him, seizes power, there's a coup, Damon is captured, stripped of his identity of who he is, and he's sent as a slave to serve Prince Laurent, who is Prince of Ver, which is their enemy nation. Um, and he's sent there to be his personal slave. Um, Ver is a country that feels kind of like, I don't know, medieval French almost. Like it's got a lot of vibes and signals that will maybe make you feel that kind of way. Um, but there, the court of Ver is very like decadent and there, both societies are based very heavily on slavery. So Damon becomes Lawrence's slave. The, the twist here is that Damon in battle long before the book opens killed Lauren's older brother. And so he very much wants to not let Lauren find out who he is, because if he does, he knows that the consequences will be very bad. Um, And at the same time, wants to escape, get back to his country, retake his throne. You know, he's got like a really long and complicated to-do list here, um, all (laughs) while managing being in slavery, which is not something he ever expected to happen. Um, And so their relationship, Damon and Lauren, becomes complicated, as you can imagine. And there's always squickiness, always, always going to be squickiness reading what is intended to be a romance when there is a master-slave situation. Like, that is inherently problematic, and, like, I get it. But I still read all three books, and I still really enjoyed them, so go out and, you know, form your own opinion. But um, I will say that it's their, their eventual romantic relationship is very hard won. Neither character is who they portray themselves to be. And a lot of what they do together as they become closer is about dismantling these institutions in their various countries that have created these situations that they have found themselves in. But you have to get through all three books to get there. So a lot of people, I think, read book one and give up because they're like, ah, squeaky, which is totally fine and understandable. But if you are into villain romances... I, it, it doesn't get much more like villainous than evil manipulative prince who's holding you captive as a slave. Like that's really peak villainy as far as I can tell. <laughs> so that's Captive Prince. Um, that's the name of the first book, Captive Prince, and also the trilogy uh, by C.S. Picot. I 
had to seek out help for this one because, and I am in no way like judging. I mean, this makes perfect sense to me as a cliche, or excuse me, as a interest, but I had, I had it ruined for me by an ex who was sort of villainous. So I can't do villain romances anymore, mm. but, um, Trisha and Jess who are on the one in romance podcast and Jess was just on get booked. I, I went to them for this one and, um, they recommended the professional, uh, which is the first in this game maker series by Cresley Cole and the quote-unquote hero um, <laughs> is a mafia enforcer named Alexi who like just is 100% there for his boss whatever it takes he'll get it done and the boss has a long-lost daughter um, who sort of you know reappears and or is found or whatever and now she is under threat um, so he decides that he's gonna kidnap her to protect her and so Natalie who is the heroine who is a grad student has just like and now I have been kidnapped by a <laughs> professional enforcer and whisked away to Russia and like am being basically held captive in this very lush like indulgent sort of environment so it's very like kidnapping is a squick right but like if you are looking for that exact thing like this is a what did Jessica say Jess said um, that she had mixed feelings she was very fascinated and like decided to embrace the crazy <laughs> so like if you're on board to embrace the crazy um, this is this is for you uh, there's definitely some questionable consent stuff because kidnapping um, but again like if this is the dynamic that you're looking for, which is legit, uh, this is a book that might scratch that itch. So that's The Professional by Cressley Cole. All right. So our last, listen, y'all, like I really <laughs> do. I just want to say I really do believe in not yucking other people's yums, like the, especially in things like this, because this, like there are things like this that obviously you would never want to experience in real life, but that doesn't mean that they're not in some ways interesting and important to read about. That is all I'll say about that. I just want to throw that out. Agreed. This is also my, this is my romance, um, like kryptonite is weird, dark consent things. And I have given up like figuring, trying to figure out if that means there's something weird about me. It's just a like literary preference. It doesn't mean that you are uh, right. Like, uh, encouraging these things to happen in real life, right? right? It's just a book. In the same way that dudes who go out and read political thrillers aren't encouraging anyone to go assassinate someone. Like, right, or like the fine. fact that I love zombie novels doesn't mean I'm like on board for a zombie apocalypse. Like right. I would prefer <laughs> that never to happen. That doesn't mean I'm going to stop reading about them. It's all, I think, equally, like we like to read about weird stuff sometimes. That's fine. All right, I will get off my soapbox now about <laughs> this and give our last question, which is from Ellie, who says, I realized recently that I deeply enjoy books and media about groups of people who support and have a deep and unconditional love for each other, especially in abnormal circumstances. Some examples of this I particularly loved are the Harry Potter books and A Little Life, which is like a wow, a range there. Um, yeah. And the shows Sensate and Orphan Black. I prefer literary fiction, science fiction, and contemporary YA, and I also prefer if there are queer people in a book. What are some other books about uh, with tight loving groups and found families? What you got, Amanda? Okay, I picked Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo, which is the first in a duology. Um, the second, which is Crooked Kingdom. I just read it on vacation, so like <laughs> should come to brain, uh, you know, sooner. But yeah, the second one is Crooked Kingdom, and they're both out, so you can go read both if you like. Um, Six of Crows is a YA novel that is like if Ocean's Eight were about or Ocean's Eleven were about teenagers in a in Amsterdam in like the 1700s with magic kind of a thing. Um, so it takes place in this fictional place called Ketterdam. The, the, there's like, you know, not really a main character because it's about a cast of found families, but the kind of main character's name is Kaz. And he is like a criminal prodigy. Ketterdam is a very gritty, dirty, like London and like Dickensian London kind of city um, where you go to make your fortune. If you don't survive, you die and nobody cares. And that's just kind of how it is. Um, Kaz came to Ketterdam as a child, um, had some terrible things happen to him, but he has managed to claw and scratch his way up to being the second in command of one of the gangs in the city. Um, he is a 
brilliant strat like so has a brilliant strategical mind when it comes to making money and conning people who deserve to be conned. He's kind of um that like criminal with a heart of gold trope, except his heart's not necessarily always gold. It's gold in the ways that count as far as you care about in the book. Um, but he's he's definitely an anti-hero. And he collects this crew of other, you know, like misfits who have very particular talents. Um, there's He collects a, a sharpshooter who also has a gambling problem. His spy, he calls the Wraith. Her name is Inej. He, like, rescues her from um, uh, a house of prostitution where she was, like, bought as a slave and forced to work in him like she was human trafficked basically um and she turns her into like his spy because she used to be an acrobat so she can very sneakily sneak you know um and the other characters there's four other characters that he collects to perform this one final heist that um if they pull it off it involves stealing a human out of like a dungeon in what is essentially like iceland in this it has a different name but in this universe um if they can pull it off, which seems extremely impossible, they can basically retire from their lives of crime or, you know, have bigger lives of crime, depending on what your goal is, really. Um, but there's, you know, there's double crossings. There's lots of danger. Um, there's lots of opportunities for failure uh, and switches on switches and switches kind of stuff. But the group, the six of them, it's really interesting the way that she writes them because they are a found family. Like they are together. They're in it. They defend each other, you know, secret handshakes, the whole thing. But they're also all criminals. So there's always a chance that, you know, someone from the outside is going to press on one of their weaknesses and the whole thing will fall apart. So it's it's a found family with, like, a lot of asterisks. And if they can overcome those weaknesses, then it, like, you know, you you know that, that the group will be stronger for it. So And it's very fast-paced and heisty, which I super love. So that's Six of Crows by Lee Bardugo. I picked another recent favorite sci-fi found family well it's like science fantasy technically um it's hunger makes the wolf by alex wells who also goes by alex axe and is a book right contributor um it is the first in a series don't at me but it again has a really satisfying ending and it is like basically a motorcycle squad in space like on a frontier planet in space plus found family plus like creepy magic stuff um (laughs) it's really i just like love the setup of this so there's this world that is owned by a corporation um they have a monopoly on interstellar travel this company and this is basically like a mining world so you if you live there you either are like support to the mining teams or you are a miner and because it is also very tightly like access to this planet is very tightly controlled by the corporation so like government is basically whatever the company says not necessarily what it should be um and this leads of course to a lot of terrible labor practices and you know lack of development in important ways so some people who are sort of rebelling have like a motorcycle squad in the desert cool um and do are like mercenaries and do like, you know, protection gigs or, you know, maybe some less legal things. And the characters, there's a couple characters. Um, one of them is an orphan who is left behind by a rift ship and taken in by the biker troop. Um, she also had a, was like sort of partially raised in this home with another young woman who um, was her sister for all intents and purposes. And and that sister uh, gets kidnapped by the company for unknown reasons. And so Hob is trying to figure out what is going on with that. And you get to see um, the sister's journey as well. You switch POV a couple of times. And then there's these people with powers on the planet that the corporation is trying to suppress. Um, and so there are like witch hunts. And it's all like there's a ton of stuff going on. There's so many things going on. But it's so awesome how the characters are really there for each other and whether that's like calling a strike against the corporation or like you know getting out into the desert to try to find somebody who's been lost or breaking into a like high security facility like it's all it's all there and it's all so fun and satisfying I really enjoyed this on so many levels Um, I cannot wait for the second book to come out which I believe will be later this year oh no wait it's out now I have it I just haven't 
haven't read it yet. Yes, it's literally sitting on my TBR across the room from me. <laughs> so two of the books are out now. Um, and yeah, it's 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 all of the found family plus lots of action. And I really enjoyed it. So that's Hunger Makes the Wolf by Alex Wells. And that's our show. Hooray! Huzzah! Thank you all so much for listening. You can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes the show easier for other people to find. Thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring the show. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson and Jen. I am on Tumblr mostly these days. It's jenirl.tumblr.com. And that's Jen with two N's. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.